Tomorrow, of course, being Christmas Eve and the next day, Christmas itself, entirely appropriate for us to focus in on this grand season, including the very concept that was sung in that song about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's my focus this morning as we study the Word of God together, the miraculous implanting of a seed by the Holy Spirit into the womb of Mary is actually a prime article of the Christian faith. You might be surprised for me to say that and for you to hear it, but I believe it to be true. You must affirm the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It is a prime article of the Christian faith. I submit to you that unless you believe that the God-man, Jesus himself, who is called the Christ, was manifested in human flesh through his supernatural conception and birth into our world, you don't know him. Oh, you may know about him. You may have some acquaintance historically that there was such a one that Christians purport to have lived his life, you might affirm that, oh, perhaps miracles happen to some people in the world or perhaps not, you're unsure. And you might even say that Christians are certainly convinced about this idea of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ but not me, not this virgin birth you talk about. It's a strong statement. If you don't affirm the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you don't really know him. Are you sure, Lance, that you want to say that if you deny the so-called virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian? Well, as far as the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ It all starts there, at least humanly speaking. Yes, it is certainly true that everyone who is a true Christian, whether they understand all of the implications of the virgin birth, uh, whether they've studied it for themselves and all of its details, whether they affirm it either implicitly or explicitly, you have to realize that it all starts there. What does Scripture say? Well, 1 John, you don't have to turn there, but 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Listen to this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And verse 9 of 1 John 4 says it this way, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Here's what the apostle John is saying. He's saying that every person who knows the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and who confesses as an article of their belief system 
affirms that Jesus Christ was manifested. He came forth. He was born into this world in order that we might live through his coming to us. That's what we believe. This is what Scripture teaches. And even though John doesn't explicitly tell us, Luke and Matthew, through their accounts, tell us in no uncertain terms that the way Jesus was brought into this world was through a virgin conceiving in her womb a man by the Holy Spirit who would later be revealed to us as God in human flesh. And this union of the human and the divine in the person of Jesus Christ through a virginal conception is why Satan has done everything within his power to undermine this doctrine in the minds of people. Because it's the very taproot of our faith. It's where it all begins. It's that seed which then flowers into our very understanding of this person, the God-man. It's where it all begins. If Satan's smart enough and cunning enough and diabolical enough, he'll want to cut the tree at the very root, right? He'll want to spring doubt in the minds of unbelieving people that it certainly couldn't have been that way. It absolutely shouldn't have been that way. How could anybody believe such a preposterous doctrine that there was a woman who had had no relations with a man who has now become pregnant? Foolishness. As the Brits might say, poppycock. How could it be true? How is it real? And I would say even beyond that, if you don't affirm the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, then you can't affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. And if you don't affirm the deity of Jesus Christ, then you can't affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan has been very effective in deceiving people about all three of those, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And I suppose this is the very reason why the Apostle John uses such strong language for those who deny these things. This is what he says, 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now this spirit of the Antichrist, it is already in the world. So this morning... I want to give you some teaching hope, some preaching encouragement to affirm, not just intellectually, but spiritually and worshipfully, that Jesus Christ was indeed virgin born. Anybody need any encouragement like that? I do. I do. So, I want to start out with this. Robert Gromacki, great Bible teacher written in his book, The Virgin Birth, these words about this idea of the God-man. If Jesus had not been born through natural generation, he would have died like all mortals. But his death would not have had an infinite, eternal, redemptive value. There had to be the incarnation of God the Son through the virgin conception to bring together in one person the two features necessary for redemption, human mortality and divine value. 
It's right. It's right about that. And so this morning, I want to give you three quick points. Quick as in Lance Quinn's definition of quick. (laughs) And the first one is this. The first one is this. The virginal conception of Jesus Christ is the teaching of Holy Scripture, and therefore, you ought to believe it. Or to put it simply, God's Word says it, I believe it. It doesn't mean I have to understand all the implications of it. It doesn't have to mean that I understand the great mystery of it. It doesn't mean that I am fully aware of all of these things in their fullness as a human being. I shall not. I shall not. But it doesn't prevent me from believing it. A lot of you do not understand how airplanes work. I do not. But I get in them all the time. In fact, I try to remind myself, don't get on the plane, get in one. (laughs) And when you get in one, you are believing that those who masterfully put it together have figured out how it flies and how it takes off and how it lands, right? And so the virginal conception of Jesus Christ is taught in Holy Scripture, and even if I don't understand all the implications of it, the fullness of it, I still affirm it because it's one of the great articles of our faith, and I believe it. So let's turn in our Bibles first to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And it could very well be there that you and I are introduced not just because of a Christmas song, but the reality that something is far more implicative in Isaiah 7 than just what appears in the text itself. Isaiah chapter 7, you know it very, very well. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Stop there. How could such a sentence be accurate? I mean, that's what it says, but a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, if she conceives and bears a son, she's not a virgin. If she's a virgin, then she can't conceive and bear a son. But it says it. And this virgin who conceives and bears a son shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's chapter 7, verse 14. And now turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 9, it says here, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, when you and I read such a thing, or maybe even better yet, when in fact the Jews of Isaiah's time of prophecy, when they read that, to whom would they assume this refers? Well, for you and me it's easy because we live in our new covenant times and and we see so many passages out of the New Testament, but that was not their blessing. So to whom might have this referred? Well, just... Yesterday, I received in my email inbox a blog from a solid scholar named John Oswald. And this is what he says. Very helpful. He apparently knew that I was preaching on this this morning. (laughs) And he's helping me. He says this. Here's the historical context of Isaiah 9. This might help you too. Isaiah speaks to people living in three time periods. Before the Babylonian exile, during the Babylonian exile, and after the Babylonian exile. In chapter 9, Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Israel, which is named Judah. Very good. Before the last Babylonian exile. Israel and Syria are pressuring Judah to form a coalition against Assyria. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is afraid to go against Assyria, so he sends a king's ransom to Assyria asking for their help. This is all the historical context of Isaiah 9. Isaiah spoke into a situation where Judah felt powerless and they were afraid of the rulers to their north. As their enemies only seemed to grow in strength and tighten their grasp, they didn't know if God was for them or against them or if he had simply abandoned them. So what we do know is that there were a people, the people of Israel, and they might have very well thought that they'd been abandoned and that the Assyrians are coming to plunder. And so Isaiah prophesies. And he prophesies about their future defeat and their exile and their return, and then he includes this prophetic vision of a child who would represent God's presence, embody God's characteristics, and then bear the responsibility of governing his people. So they know that they're not going to be ultimately eradicated. And when this time of exile is over, and even if they go into another captivity or another, they believe that God is still with them. That's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. He hasn't ultimately abandoned his people. 
How can he? The book of Romans says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And so God will continue to shepherd his people. But the language of Isaiah 9 is really, is really strange because it says something like this, for unto us a child is born. And Isaiah prophesies the birth of a child whose name would signify the very presence of God. And if you're like me, you're saying, look, I love it when babies are born. I saw eight of my own children born, and now all of these grandchildren, and hopefully a hundred more to come. Nope, no pressure, kids, no pressure. And I love it. And when I see a baby born, it's precious. But if I'm in exile, and if I'm under a, an army who wants to do me in, am I thinking about babies being born? No, I'm thinking about, will I have my head tomorrow? So how's this in any way encouraging with this Isaiah, Isaiah prophecy about a child being born? I want to know about vanquishing the army. I want to know about survival. I want to know about, can I eat tomorrow? I want to know about, will I have clothes to wear? Or what about maybe my other already grown children and their children? I mean, I don't want to hear about a child being born. I want to hear about victory and triumph and vanquishing all our foes. What's going on? Well, for, for us, a child is born. So what does it mean? I mean, Isaiah 9, 6 speaks of this child. Isaiah 7, 14, a child will be born. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and this son will be named Emmanuel, God with us. In chapter 9, Isaiah goes on to say, uh, the government will be on his shoulders, and there'll be no end to that government. There'll be no end to peace, and he'll reign on David's throne, and this kingdom will be established forever and ever, and maybe now I'm starting to come to the place where I'm more encouraged. Because even though a child is born, and if you're telling me that this child will grow up and become strong, and he'll be strong enough to be on David's throne, and by the way, he's going to be so strong that David's throne will last forever and ever, now we're talking. Now we're talking. And he's going to uphold this everlasting kingdom, and it will have nothing but justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. And then it says this, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now we're talking. So maybe that intrigues me to find out who this child is. And when's it going to happen? And do you realize that when Isaiah prophesied such a thing, from the time of its fulfillment was about how many years? 700. Now that's not encouraging. So then maybe some of those people are going to say, well, apparently it's not going to come in my lifetime. Ah, but those children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren that I love, maybe it'll come in theirs. And if it does, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will make it so. And it'll be everlasting. 
And because the Jews believed that there was life everlasting, I really will be there too. And so Isaiah is the place where we start. And Isaiah 7 says there's going to be a virgin who conceives a child. And this child's going to grow up to be great. And he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And you and I know that the very fulfillment of that prophecy will occur in the person of Jesus the Christ. Even if it's 700 years later. Now maybe, just maybe, some of those who were living when that prophecy was given are thinking about whoever this king might be on the throne of David, and they might even suppose, well, wait a minute. Okay, maybe it's not going to be in, in five years or ten years, but maybe it's that, that fellow Hezekiah right now. Maybe it's Hezekiah, chapters 38 and 39 of Isaiah. The only problem was Hezekiah died as a grown man. And can you imagine the Jews, every king that comes along, is this the one? Is this the one to whom all the prophecies, not just Isaiah, but Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Nahum and Micah and Malachi, just to name a few? Who is it? Which king? Will I be alive? And of course, you and I know that in John chapter 1, Verse 14, it says that this word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory like no other. And so whether or not you and I are very anxious and very antsy about figuring out who the king really is who will fulfill such prophecy, we know it to be with our new covenant eyes, that it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, we best turn to our Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Yes, this is what we need to know. This is, this is Matthew. This is so glorious. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 in the beginning. And by the way, you need to come... Tomorrow night for the 5 o'clock service, because most of these passages that I'll be referring to, some of them I'll read in their entirety, are all going to be read. They're going to be read by our elders. They're going to be read in rapid-fire succession. There's going to be no comment. And so if you're not here tomorrow, then you'll have to explain to everybody, because you're here today, for those who aren't here tomorrow so that both of us can know what in the world is going on here. And Matthew chapter 1 says this in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which prophet is that, I pray tell? Good class, very good. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, that is, relationally, sexually speaking, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want you to notice. Look back at verse 16. Notice verse verse 16. This is ingenious Inspired scripture, this is what it tells us, verse 16, that Joseph was the husband of Mary, but not that he was the biological father of Jesus. You notice that? Rather, Matthew says that he was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. Mary's the biological link to the humanity of Jesus. See how precise scripture is? There's no mistake. There's no stumbling. This is the biological link to the humanity of Jesus, and it is Mary, and she was a virgin, and she conceived a son by virtue of the miraculous implanting of the seed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And notice this also, before they came together, before they came together, it speaks of their purity and that Joseph would not have been the biological father of Jesus. Do you see that? And then it says, notice the supernatural nature of the scriptural revelation. The child has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. God is the one who has miraculously brought about what man could not, and that is a virginal conception. That sounds like it's oxymoronic. A virginal conception, how can this be? By the Holy Spirit. And you remember what Robert Gromacki said? In our redemption, it spoke of something that would have, by necessity, infinite value, divine value. It had to be this way. In order to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus could not have been a sinner from the womb. If he had a human father, that would have contributed to a sinfulness from the very womb. You and I are sinful from the womb onward. We have a biology of human dad and mom, and therefore we are born sinners. Jesus was not. Look also at chapter 2, verse 11 of Matthew's gospel. Notice the language again. Notice the specificity. Chapter 2, verse 11. The child with Mary, his mother. You notice the continuing references to Mary being the mother? Joseph is not called the child's father except when, like in the case of Jesus' circumcision, he was declared the child's legal father. Look at verses 13 and 14. You will see in verse 13 and 14. Now, when they had departed, Matthew 2, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child and his mother And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Herod. The child and his mother, the child and his mother, the child and his mother. This This is very specific language that you and I could know and believe and affirm because it's protecting the idea of the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ who didn't come out of the womb as a sinner. Very specific language. 
Look over at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We won't read all of it, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to verse 45, but this is also this birth narrative. And this is a key, my friends. This is a key, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. You come tomorrow night, you'll read this. You'll have it read in your presence. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So this is, this is another account, and it's a more full account. And it enhances and enriches the Matthean account. And notice this, look at verse 26. I read it. Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That's very, very important. When it says betrothed there, by the way, betrothal was a 12-month period usually for the protection of the man's inheritance. Okay, because not all things were done decently and in order. There were some problems and issues at times And then it says, of the descendants of David. That meant that Joseph, too, was in the line of David, another important fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, Scripture is so clear, and it's so precise, and it gives us everything that we have to know and affirm about the specificity of the virgin birth. And by the way, do you notice that it also, in this reading, says he won't become the Son of God, but that he will be called the Son of God. Most interesting. Fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And by the way, in Luke's gospel, Parthenos, virgin, Mary knew that she had never had relations with a man. And can you imagine her glee and yet the bewilderment? How can this be? I am a virgin. What am I saying? All these very special, intricate details, and there are a hundred more, that Scripture has figured it all out and given us all the very precise language, and it tells us this, that even though you and I don't understand all the implications of it, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is so intricately interwoven into the story of Jesus' birth that it is undeniably true as far as Scripture teaches it. And because it's undeniably true as Scripture teaches it, then if we are professing Christians, we believe in both the virgin birth and the inerrancy of Holy Scripture, the infallibility of Holy Scripture, the perfection of Holy Scripture, the way Holy Scripture is so precise when it gives the details of this. And because of that, if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the perfection of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the superiority of Scripture, then you have no problem affirming the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's not as though it's ho-hum, I believe, in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's this, wow! This is incredible. The infinite mind of God the infinite perfections of God, the intricacies of how the language itself preserves all of the details of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So if you declare your allegiance to Scripture, you declare your allegiance to the truth of the doctrine of the virgin birth. 
You can't play fast and loose with Scripture and say, well, I mean, I'm, I know that's what it says, but this is a human book, and human authors put it together, but how can I know with certainty and with truth that its facts concur with reality in all its details? Well, what you've just done, my friends, is you've put yourself above Scripture. You've made yourself the divine interpreter of Scripture. You've said yourself that only if your mind can comprehend such a truth, then it might be possibly true that the virgin birth, in fact, did occur. But if you're like me, placing ourselves under the Scripture, placing ourselves in obedience to Scripture, and then studying as hard as we possibly can to see all of the consistencies of Scripture, then you and I have no problem at all seeing a virgin who conceives a baby in her womb by the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. That's, uh, for the divine persons of the Godhead, fairly easy. And if you believe in the teaching of Holy Scripture about the miraculous beginning of the person of Jesus of Nazareth, then you ought to believe that the virgin birth is true. Second point. Second point. The virginal conception of Jesus Christ explains the two natures of the God-man. It explains the nature of of this divine human relationship. And, and, and now you see how the threads are put together. Now you see that the links of the chain give you a must regarding this one who is called the God-man. It, it must be like that. Well, how is it so? Well, I can't, in the brief time that we have this morning, give you all of that. But I could tell you this, he, speaking of Jesus, had to have been virgin conceived in order to die in sinner's place as a perfect human substitute. This is is going on now from the virgin birth. This is going on to the idea of the deity of Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you want to see a mammoth verse of epic proportions, then you will see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a solidarity in the links of the chain with who Jesus is as the virgin-born Son of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is probably so very familiar to you, but think of it in the context of his virgin-born life. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, that is, for all who would ever believe, for our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What's the point? How does this fit? Well, think of it this way. Christ didn't sin. He wasn't a sinner, and he wasn't a sinner because he wasn't fraught with a sinful nature. And because he didn't have a sinful nature, 
he therefore didn't sin, both by way of acts of sin and by the very nature of not being a sinner. He was not constituted as a sinner, and so therefore he becomes the perfect substitute for us as sinners. So God made him, Christ, the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That's the cross. And because it says he knew no sin, that means that in Jesus' life, his life before the cross, his 34, 5, 6 years, depending on how old Jesus was, all of those years that he lived, he never sinned once, which meant he was the perfect fulfillment of God's law. And when he went to that cross, as the perfect law keeper, he submitted himself on that cross so that for us, for our sake, he would be the one condemned as the lawbreaker. And he had to have two, both elements. He was the perfect law keeper, and he became the lawbreaker for us. For our sake, the Bible says, so that in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Well, it has to mean at least this, that the righteousness of God is that God must punish all sin. And when God punishes all sin, then it has to be a God who has never sinned who pours out his divine wrath on someone. And that someone is none other than the perfect law keeper and the one who's voluntarily giving his life to become the atonement, the substitute for our sin. Since Jesus never sinned, and since you and I sin all the time, every day of our lives, multiple thoughts in our hearts every day of our lives, we need a Savior, desperately need a Savior. And when Jesus Christ agreed, not only in time, but from eternity past, leaving the glories of heaven so that you and I could receive as a gift the perfect law keeper, the only one who would have ever been and could ever have been the perfect candidate to die, becomes the very one who then did die, who voluntarily, who for the joy set before him endured the shame and went to that cross so that you and I could be declared righteous. Because in and of ourselves, none of us are righteous, not even close. The Bible says that even if we sin in only one part of the law, we are guilty of all. And so we're automatically disqualified. We could never. You say, well, but doesn't the Bible say, I think it's maybe in the Gospel of John somewhere, that, that there's no greater love than someone who lays down his life for his friend? I, I might possibly think about giving my life for someone else, and certainly there have been those people. But because they were sinful in their hearts, because they were constituted as sinners and they sinned by choice, they've been disqualified. So even their death on behalf of somebody else couldn't be a righteous atonement, a righteous sacrifice, a righteous substitute. 
disqualified. Me and you and everybody else in the history of the world, save one man, the God-man. What a plan. What an ingenious plan. I mean, who would have thunk it? Who would have been for the rest of us some novelist, some playwright, some movie director, uh, some film producer who could have come up with this story, including a virgin birth? And yet, this is the divine mind. And from eternity past, Jesus Christ came to this earth in the form of a slave And as a slave, he was obedient to his heavenly father by going to the cross and dying there so that you and I might be declared righteous by God through and on behalf of his atonement for my sins. You see, my friends, that only a virgin birth and only a God-man who has never sinned and who lived his life in a righteous fashion, who was totally pure, totally holy. He was that perfect lamb of God without blemish who then goes to that cross and dies an ignominious, violent, wretched death and who was utterly willing to do so so that you and I might be declared by God righteous, declared not guilty to be righteous, but only in Christ. This is, what, this is the glory of the gospel. This is what the Bible teaches. And again, someone's going to say, but it, it seems so fanciful. I mean, it, it, it seems so, so above our minds to conceive of such a thing. And I would say, I agree. I agree. And maybe there's someone in there who fancies himself an intellectual, fancies herself a a good mind, and maybe someone says to themselves, possibly under their breath, or maybe on the street corner, ah, poppycock. This is a, this is a fable. You mean to tell me that you are actually banking on this for your life eternal? Uh, Do do you mean to tell me that you believe in a fable, a fairy tale that says that there was somebody born into this world who didn't have a human father, but he had a human mother, and that he lived a perfect life, and that he died a violent sacrificial death, and all of that is on behalf of someone like you who's a believer, and you actually believe that believing something like that is going to get you into a place of eternal bliss forever and ever? And do you know what the intellectuals do with such a story? Can't buy it. Why? Because I can't conceive of it myself. And if I can't conceive of it myself, then it can't be true. Well, I I grant the cynic one thing and one thing only. None of us, even the most erudite theologian on the planet, has conceived the complete and full implications of it all. Some of it is mystery. And one of the great theologians of the Reformed Church, Louis Burkhoff, says it this way, the doctrine of the two natures in one person transcends human reason. 
It is the expression of a super-sensible reality and of an incomprehensible mystery which has no analogy in the life of a man as we know it and finds no support in human reason and therefore can only be accepted by faith on the authority of the Word of God. And I say, sign me up. I don't have to understand the full implications of it. I don't have to say, I have to understand this completely and fully to its vast and ultimate end, or I shall not believe. Well, you shall not believe. But if you do believe, you're not like the world. The world says, seeing is believing. But for the Christian, we believe and then we see. Yes, I'm banking my entire eternal life and destiny on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and that he, in fact, is the God-man. It best explains the coming together of God and man, even if I don't always understand it. Gramacchi, to the biblical authors, there was no contradiction that Jesus was both fleshly human and spiritually divine. Christ must be seen as the, the theanthropic person. Divine, the, anthrop, anthropic, human. He was divine before he became human. He was God manifest in flesh. It could be said that Jesus was humanized deity, but never that he was deified humanity. He was the God man, but not the man God. He was neither a divine man nor a human God. The two natures were not altered by their union within the one person of Christ. To rob the divine nature of God of a single attribute would destroy his deity, and to rob man of a single human attribute would result in the destruction of a true humanity. At the virgin conception, there was no diminishing of either nature, nor was there any exchange of properties from one nature to the other. And you say, circuits have officially been blown. Tilt. Overload. And yet it's true. And the third and final point for this morning is this. The virgin conception of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. It is an essential, integral part of our knowledge of Christianity itself. It's essential. That's why theologians and even run-of-the-mill believers have done what they could do to plumb the depths of this idea of the virgin birth of a growing boy of which Luke 2.52 says that he was growing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. That means that he was growing intellectually. He was growing intellectually and that he was also growing spiritually in favor with God and man and that he was also growing horizontally. He was in favor with God and man, and he was growing with his fellow men, and he also was growing in the very social context of a little place called Palestine. He grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man, and he even grew in his vertical relationship with the Father. You say, how can it be if he's God in human flesh? Well, how would you do it if you were 12 years old? He was 
in the courtyard asking the religious leaders questions at the age of 12. And when, when his mom and the caravan were about two days away, they realized he, he's not around. Where is he? And so then they had to trudge all the way back with their large and expansive family to find him. And Mary says, where were you? And he says, don't you understand? I'm asking questions of these religious leaders. I have to be about my father's business. And you and I are saying, there's something special about that boy. (laughs) And as he continued to grow and he was perfectly obedient until his father Joseph himself undoubtedly died. And yet he taught him the trade of craftsmanship, of woodworking. And he was obedient there. And he was obedient horizontally with his brothers and sisters who came after Joseph and Mary came together. And and then his horizons broadened and then he was beginning to live among others to which they realized there's something special about him. And perhaps with generations and generations and generations of Jews, some of them might have even said, is this the king of Israel? Is this the one to whom whom Isaiah's prophecy points? Is this, this one who will deliver us from Roman oppression? And then comes the very ministry of Jesus. And the very ministry of Jesus in his teaching and in his miracle healings. And with all of this impactful teaching and healing ministry, there were some who were saying, this can't be this one who is the Messiah to come, can he? And others say, no, it can't be. Because when that king comes, there's no such thing, at least in my mind, of a virgin birth and of a God-man and certainly not one who's going to come and die on an ignominious cross by the Romans at the Jews' insistence? Couldn't happen. Our king, when he comes, he's not coming to die. He's coming to take over. He's coming to, to liberate us from the rebellion of all of these millennia of those who have exiled us under their servitude, and, and we will not have it anymore. And so even when Jesus began to teach his disciples, he began to say to them such things as, now, I want you to realize, this is Mark chapter 9 onward, I want you to realize that the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of Man of Daniel's prophecy, this Son of Man is going to Jerusalem and he's going to receive unjust trials and he's going to die on a cross and then three days later he's going to rise from the dead. And what might those disciples, many of them faithful Jews, Peter, James, John, what might they say? Cross? Die on a cross? No, if you're the king, the king of Israel, if you're the deliverer, if you're the one to whom all these prophecies point, you're going to come and take over. And oh, by the way, we're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, aren't we? And in fact, has my mother talked to you lately? She would like, 
John and me to consider sitting on your left and right hand. If that's not too much of an imposition, we'd really appreciate it. And Jesus says, I don't think you quite understand, but you will. Because when I go, when I'm ascended to my Father, there will be another helper who will come alongside you and who in fact will be in you and he will make all things crystal clear. And you then will do what you must under my lordship and through his power until the kingdom is restored. Now if you're like me, You're saying like those disciples in Acts chapter 1, ascension, just about to happen, and they're going to see him for the last time, or so they believe, and they're going to say something like this, is it now that the kingdom shall be restored? Because it's looking like you're about to go somewhere. Could you sort of restore the kingdom first before you go somewhere so that we can be in charge? And then the angels... They have to say something like this. This Jesus who will come back just as he is about to go will allow you the opportunity to minister for his sake until he comes. And I can imagine some of those will say, that's great. Is that going to be in an hour? Let's have lunch. And then we'll wait. And it's been 2,000 years. And no wonder there are those who say, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, look, if it's been 2,000 years, bank on it, he'll never come. And here's the answer. 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. I read it to you. He was manifested in the flesh. That's virgin born. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That means that he did not fall to the temptations of Satan in the 40 days of the wilderness and that the Holy Spirit continued to infuse him with power so that he lived a righteous life. He was seen by angels. The angels came and ministered to him. He was proclaimed among the nations, and he still is. He's believed on in the world for those who will believe. And he was taken up in glory in the ascension of And he will also come one day again to judge the living and the dead. And that being the great process which starts with the virgin birth. Now you know the whole story. And now it's our responsibility to believe and to preach. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, This is the truth. We are to believe it, even if we don't understand all of it, at least the full implications of it, but we do believe. And as one theologian said, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. Upon it, the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. Yes, it does. And may you, with your glory and honor, 
Open hearts even now to believe and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God, who is Lord of all. We pray in his name. Amen.